I'm Madeline Bunting and this is Empire of the Mind and Soul, a Guardian podcast recorded at the British Museum to coincide with their major exhibition on the great 17th century Iranian ruler Shah Abbas. Shah Abbas ruled from 1587 to 1629 and his reign changed Iran forever. He proved a stabilising force following a period of civil war and foreign invasion. He strengthened the economy by establishing global trade links and revitalised Shia Islam, the state religion. The Guardian and the British Museum brought together a panel before a live audience to discuss the influence of Shah Abbas on modern Iran. This is a unique, significant time to be discussing Iran. It's the year of the 30th anniversary of the formation of the Islamic Republic and also the Iranian presidential election. The panel discussed the role Iranian identity plays in both internal politics and international relations. And they asked if this powerful Iranian leader, still known as Shah Abbas the Great, was the creator of the Middle East's modern nation-state. We'll be hearing from Charles Melville, Professor of Persian History at the University of Cambridge, the writer and journalist Azadeh Moevini, Dr Ayatollah Moharani, former Iranian Minister for Culture and Islamic Guidance, and Dr Elahai Rostami Povi, Lecturer in Development Studies at SOAS at the University of London. But first, Neil McGregor, the Director of the British Museum, begins with a potted biography of Shah Abbas, told through some of the items in the museum's exhibition. The man known really only through these very small private images, this one significantly by the Mughal artist Bishan Das, uh, in the context of the embassy from Mughal India of 1618. And quite a good place to start because it reminds Europeans that, of course, the main foreign power for Iran through most of this period, certainly economically, was, of course, Iran. And it already suggests, I think, something of the inscrutable quality uh, of the man. The political achievements, just to remind you, the enormous achievement of recovering the boundaries of Iran and establishing the boundary, the new boundary, with the Ottomans in the west, the Afghans and the Uzbeks in the north and in the east. And the achievement, of course, of controlling the Persian Gulf as Hormuz, which since 1515 had been in the possession of the Portuguese, the illuminated manuscript in the exhibition showing the Anglo-Iranian campaign to recover uh, Hormuz for Shah Abbas, controlling, of course, access to the Gulf uh, from then on. And a particularly interesting moment to focus on, I think, because it raises those issues of Shah Abbas's military links with the European powers, the great new capital of Isfahan, comparable really, I think, only with Petersburg as the great new capital made by the ruler to reposition uh, his country. And the projection of that power, of course, above all, through his gifts to the shrines um, and the building of the mosques. This is the Sheikh Lutfala Mosque um, in Isfahan. But the great shrine in Mashhad, where an enormous amount of treasure spent restoring the shrine, which had been sacked by the foreign occupiers, and becoming the great focus of pilgrimage in Iran as it remains to this day. And the way those shrines were used, not just to show in their rebuilding the power of the king, as might have happened anywhere in the world, but by the gifts of particular objects made to them, in Ardabil especially, 
the gifts of the Chinese porcelain, this amazing Yuan vase of uh, mid-14th century, which, as you know, uh, was displayed in this Chinihane uh, at Ardabil. And this extraordinary phenomenon of Shah Abbas that through the gifts of these objects, he stimulated and transformed the artisanal production of Iran. Very much, if you like, an early version of creating the VNA, um, that if you put the great stuff out in the public domain, it will affect what is actually produced. And what was produced, of course, becomes the envy of the world. The textiles, particularly the, the carpets, becoming the most desirable things for the Europeans and becoming a major source, not just of uh, revenue, but of prestige and diplomatic relationship uh, across the Middle East and Western Europe. This production, this extraordinary ability to make things that everybody wanted, this trade in the hands uh, of the Armenians, whom he brings to Isfahan, so that they will be able to trade with Western Europeans, and uniquely, therefore, for the period in Isfahan, allowing the Christian Armenians their own uh, places of worship, a phenomenon that astonishes the Europeans when they go there, to find that you can have different religions in the same state in a way that would have been certainly unthinkable in most of Western Europe at the time. This trade of uh, textiles, above all, to Western Europe, controlled and managed uh, by the Armenians, delivers to Iran an enormous amount of silver bullion. This is silver mined in Spanish South America, minted in Amsterdam, and then taken to Iran in order to buy the carpets to bring them back. This relationship between Iran and Western Europe, dazzling successful commercially, is much more complex politically. The relationship between the rest of the world, particularly European world, and Iran has always been complicated and to the Iranians has always seemed confused and duplicitous. Different positions being taken up, shifting uh, ground for reasons never totally made clear. The man himself manages all this brilliantly, of course. We can only show the achievements we can't show any of the suffering those achievements might have caused. We do know that by the end of the reign, he has killed or blinded his sons, uh, and there's clearly a very brutal side which can't be shown in the exhibition, but which is, of course, well documented. What we can show is this rather startling private side of uh, Shah Abbas engaged in some only marginally Islamic activity. Um, uh, <laughs> So what we have as a man in private life, very unclear, but in public life, the restorer of the realm, the man who remakes the, the, the Iran of his predecessors, who re-establishes Iran as the great power of the region, and who, in doing so, connects that very profoundly to the Shia allegiance. Ooh. Next, Professor Charles Melville, the Professor of Persian History at the University of Cambridge, gave the audience an historical overview of the Safavid dynasty and the place of Shah Abbas within it. 
Well, um, it's difficult to start off such an enormous subject in five minutes, but um, the first question I want to raise is the cult of the personality, and I think this is something that we may discuss later. How much can you really say one man did all these things? And the corollary of that question is, what if Shah Abbas, for instance, or Abbas had been murdered in 1577, which is when he was supposed to have been murdered, but uh, Ismail, the previous Shah, died before the order could be carried out. So this is the other side of this point. Would Iran be where it is now? Would it look very different? How much did Shah Abbas actually have to do with long-term historical processes? Well, I may be the only one who's really interested in that, but nevertheless... <laughs> I think it's worth mentioning because Shah Abbas is sort of turning into some sort of almost godlike figure and one has to remember that uh, uh, cometh the hour, cometh the man and it, of course it was a very difficult hour and he was a very exceptional man but nevertheless a lot of these things may or may not have happened anyway and uh, we need to keep uh, his own personality in perspective I think. So one way of looking at this is to say that modern Iran owes nothing at all to Shah Abbas. I mean it was nearly 400 years ago and a lot of things have happened then which have had a much uh, stronger and more important and immediate impact on Iran than anything he did. And um, if one's looking even at the introduction of Shiism, of course that wasn't him who did that. It was Ismail I and then this was consolidated by Shah Tahmasp after him. So uh, he is an agent, of course, uh, it was a very critical moment in Iran's history. Uh, but he didn't initiate many of the things that um, happened subsequently. And the other extreme, of course, is to say modern Iran is everything to Shah Abbas because he conquered his neighbours and kicked them out of Iran. He went out of his way to um, establish Shiism as a, well, as obviously the religion of the country, but also to some extent as a political force. Uh, which blossomed into the situation we have today. And so it would be possible to say that really uh, he's responsible for everything. So, mm -hmm. of course, these are the polar extremes of the debate. Um, naturally, I'm going to sit somewhere in the middle. But what I wanted to start the ball rolling with, because um, we, we're really interested in Iran's place in the world, so I thought it might be helpful to look at Iran's place in the world in the um, late 16th century, early 17th century, and just to remind you that this was more or less the age of Elizabeth. It was more or less a little bit earlier than the age of Louis XIV in Versailles. We have the Dutch Republic trying to throw off the uh, dominion of the Habsburgs in the Netherlands, and we have uh, various other European powers. Uh, so this was the world that Iran was operating in, more or less unknown to that world, I think it would be fair to say, before the 16th century. And it's important to know that not only did Shah Abbas have the immediate effect, of course, of consolidating the kingdom, uh, but he was also uh, at the beginning, really, of a process where the Europeans, that's to say the more distant outsiders, became involved in Iranian affairs. If we concentrate mainly on the British for the moment, they didn't really appear in Iran until the 1600s. Uh, you've probably all heard of the Levant Company and the East India Company and these operations. These were mercantile consortia, really, of businessmen. They had relatively little political support. And uh, before them, there was something called the Muscovy Company, which tried to find a way to Iran via Russia. Now, it didn't last very long because it was a pretty wretched journey, but it was a way of trying to bypass the Ottoman Turks. Uh, so... On the whole, the people who came to Iran were coming to find something and 
they were looking at Iran as a source of wealth and some strategic position, but mainly it was a mercantile adventure. And I think they came really, certainly not feeling superior. So we're not talking about Iran that was some sort of feeble backwater and there were the mighty Europeans. The Europeans were looking for help from Iran. They were looking for outlets for their markets. And they came really petitioning. And this goes for the odd trader who came. It certainly went for a whole string of Portuguese and uh, French priests who set up missions in Isfahan, rather feebly, presumably hoping they might convert a few Muslims to Islam. They had almost no success, of course, in that. So there was some sort of missionary hope as well. So Iran was really... um, appeared to these people as a great state. It was very exotic, it was very impressive, Uh, it appeared to be very wealthy, and so they were coming as suitors as much as anything else. Abbas, of course, played a large role in this by welcoming them, and that's maybe one of his achievements, was that he wasn't uh, operating a closed door. He was very open to European visits, he was interested in them, he thought, of course, being a clever, clever man and a cunning merchant, that he'd see what he could get out of them. It was by no means a subservient relationship. And in fact, he manipulated the Europeans far better than they manipulated him. There's no question about that. Uh, it was also touched on that his dealings with the Europeans were very unsatisfactory. And that is probably the beginning of a situation that we still see today. And it was even more obvious by the time of the 19th century. But I already mentioned uh, the problem of the Turks. And these were a source of great unease to Europe as well. And um, it seemed obvious that there was a possibility for a joint operation against the Turks, the Europeans in from the West and the Iranians in the background. And both sides professed to be interested in this. Abbas went to considerable lengths to try to persuade the Europeans to join in a common attack on Um, the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire. He wanted the the Europeans to attack Aleppo, for instance, to cut off a source of Ottoman wealth through the trade. He wanted to divert Iranian silk and other goods away from Ottoman territory around through the Persian Gulf and to reach Europe that way. And he was deeply frustrated by the inability of the Europeans to agree, and he, he kept losing his temper with these hapless ambassadors, and saying, you know, I'm doing this, I've been struggling, I've been fighting, I've been five years in the field with my army, and what have you done? Absolutely nothing. And then he discovers that, in fact, uh, the same day that his ambassadors were promised action, uh, joint action against the Turks in the future, he learns that the um, Habsburg um, emperor had actually signed a peace treaty with the Ottoman Empire. So this uh, sense of frustration and disappointment and duplicity was certainly there right from the beginning of uh, European relations with Iran and the frustration uh, probably equally on both sides. Professor Charles Melville. Azadeh Moevani is a writer and journalist born in California to Iranian parents. She talked to the British Museum audience about the importance of Shah Abbas to the younger generations of Iranians. When I was asked to reflect on Shah Abbas's legacy, what immediately came to mind sprang from 
what I had experienced living in Iran for much of the past decade. And something that I've seen that the Islamic Republic, the current day Islamic Republic, shares with Shah Abbas's government is the strategy of encouraging the spectacle and commemoration of Muslim festivals as one, a way of channeling public frustration away from the government, and two, as a way of entrenching public piety. That was certainly the case during Shah Abbas's time and is very much the case today in Iran. Um, although there has been an evolution in, in modern Iran in how Iran uses Shiism and how the state uses Shiism in this way. In recent years, I have seen, um, especially in the past decade, the state has tried to recognize and deal with young people's alienation by trying to engage with them culturally, uh, especially their alienation from um, a very heavy-handed uh, state interpretation of, of Islam. And so the state has gone about doing this by trying to make commemoration rituals more fun and appealing to young people so that there is an association between, uh, I think, piety and public public piety, and the sort of lifestyle freedoms that young people uh, yearn for in Iran, but of course on a day-to-day -day basis only uh, enjoy sporadically. And so uh, when there is a uh, the birthday of an imam or, or you know, not a morning, also morning festivals. Uh, you'll find the streets of, of Tehran and other major cities are, are covered in lights, and it's a time usually when the authorities are also more flexible when it comes to authorizing permits for things like rock concerts and things, of course, that young people are very attracted to and can only enjoy in a very limited way, usually. Um, stylish billboards go up around the city now in sort of almost graffiti-style Persian calligraphy, very much appealing to a young demographic that uh, at this point is, is more leaning toward the West and, and has grown up rather resentful of, of heavy-handed state Islam. So I found it fascinating that the state has, has gone about this and is also even uh, in recent years, um, to my mind, having lived in, in other parts of the Shia world, created even new rituals as, as ways of attracting young people. For example, Fatimiyeh, or, or the week or the period of commemorating Fatima, the Prophet Muhammad's daughter. A, a woman, of course, the state upholds it as an example and a role model for young women. Um, and during, during these festivals, young people very much take advantage of this more relaxed atmosphere. Um, is, is this, um, you know, is the fact that young people participate and come out to these rituals, is this a reflection of, of any kind of sincere piety or is it uh, a co-optation? I think when dealing with um, you know, something as individual as faith, of course, it's difficult to generalize. And of course, young people um, uh, very much have these traditions, these religious traditions handed down through their families, and there's an element, I think, of, of feeling as though they belong to this culture and, and not as though they're, they're simply going out for the sake of exploiting uh, this, this fun time. But on the whole, if, if, you, if you see and, and experience how these festivals are for young people in Tehran, it's very much, I see it as a co-optation, as a chance to socialize and to enjoy, basically, all of these freedoms that most of the time um, are, are very often sort of tenuous. They will listen to Western music in their cars and, and, and spend time with each other in a, in a manner that's usually uh, forbidden.
I think a question that comes to mind when when talking about this is uh, to what extent then do they view Shiism or or religion as part of their sense of national identity? And and my I would argue that. To, to a very limited extent, and of course, um, of course, I'm I'm mostly talking here about young middle class urban educated young people, which is actually a sizable percentage of Iran's very sizable young population. Um, although Iran is still very much, I think, portrayed in the West as a country um, of, of, of fundamentalists and, and young zealots. Um, this is a young generation that is politically, in its outlook, by and large, secular. Um, and, and I say secular to mean that I think most young people believe that government should be separate from religion, not to say that they are secular in their private attitudes toward religion, which is a separate issue. So I think that it's a, it's a young generation that, despite its sort of use of Shiism in a very sort of savvy, I think, very unique way, uh, is, is very much secular in its political outlook. and and often is so disenchanted with state religion um, and so disappointed with Iran's image in the world as this fanatical Islamic state that young people even tend to, I think now it's more popular to idolize or or to view as heroes um, figures of the pre-Islamic past as a way of identifying with with an Iran that was not so, um, so despised in the world. So I think that this young population is unique in the region. Um, It's unique, one, I think, in that women in Iran are very much a vibrant part of public life. They're very educated women, I'm sure you all know, are make up the majority uh, of students in universities, and very much, I think, pro-Western in their outlook. Uh, Not to say that they're not critical of many of the West policies, not to suggest that at all, because I think there's a long tradition of, of... of that kind of critique in Iran, especially among students. But if we're sort of looking at Iran in a regional perspective and comparing Iran to the rest of the Arab Middle East, where there's a great deal of intense and very visceral resentment of the West right now, that's not quite the case in Iran. And and I think that presents a unique opportunity for the West as it deals with Iran at this juncture. I'm Madeleine Bunting and you're listening to Empire of the Mind and Soul, a Guardian podcast recorded at the British Museum. Dr. Atala Mohajarani is the former Iranian Minister of Culture and Islamic Guidance. Here he gives us a comparative view of ideology during the reign of Shah Abbas and in today's Islamic Republic. I think when we talk about Safavid's era, This title is enough, the empire of mind and soul. I remember about Dostoevsky says, Dostoevsky gathers the souls of all Russian. The Tsars they gather the land of Russia, but Dostoevsky gathers the soul of Russia. It seems to me the Safavid era, they gathered the land as empire for Iran, they gathered the soul, they gathered the mind. This is the turn point and this is the beginning of Iranian history, the first national state in Iran. When I compare Safavid era and modern Iran, Islamic Republic of Iran, it seems to me that we have a very important similarity between two eras. 
Firstly, in Safavid's period, especially in the time of Shah Abbas the Great, in that time, we are facing a nation building. Secondly, a state building. What is the core of nation building at that time? And what is the core of a state building? Shiism is the core of nation building and also the core of state building. We were talking about the Iran, the situation of Iran and the other Muslim countries, I mean the Sunni countries. Shia, the direction of Shiism is based on mysticism. But when we are talking about Sunnis, people or Sunni as an ideology, usually there is a, I think, far from mysticism. Because of that, I believe that the Safavid period is based on Shiism. It is a main core of that dynasty. I quote to Shamsuddin Lahiji, the author of one of the most famous interpretation for Gulshan Raz. Gulshan Raz for Iranian people, for I mean the Iranian Sufis, is a Bible of Sufism in Iran. When Shamsuddin Lahiji met Shah Ismail, the founder of Safavid's dynasty, he asked a very important question. I quote, when he encountered Shah Ismail, the Shah posed a question to him as to why he always wore black, to which he replied that he was always mourning the tragic events of Karbala. When we are talking about the ideology of a Safavi dynasty, they concentrated on Shiism and also they concentrated on Karbala and Imam Hussein and Ashura. This is the main core. When we research Imam Khomeini's speeches in Sahifah Noor, many times we find some quotes by Imam Khomeini that he also concentrated on Ashura. He says, Ashura was the source and the main root of Islamic Republic of Iran, of Islamic Revolution. Shah Ismail believed that he was the son of Imam, the seventh Imam. And also he believed that he was the representative of Imam, both. Also when we are talking about Imam Khomeini, the founder of Islamic Revolution, he was the son of Imam, he was Sayyid. And also he was the representative of Imam, Nayabul Imam. It means based on this idea, based on this ideology, when we compare Safavid dynasty to modern Iran, both founder, Shah Ismail and Imam Khomeini, their claims is very similar to each other, Imam Khomeini. In the Safavid era, we are facing Qizalbash. Qizalbash is a Turkish word, red hat or red cap, both. This Qizalbash acted as a divine sword for Safavid dynasty, very similar to revolutionary guard after Iranian revolution, very similar to each other. For example, in that time, Shah Ismail, as a founder of Safavid dynasty, he organized Qizalbash. And the main direction of Qizalbash in that time, they prepared themselves to sacrifice for Shahada. It 
was their goal, it was the main direction of their life. And also when we are talking about the Revolutionary Guard after revolution, from the beginning of revolution just now, for example, especially during the imposed war against Iran, about eight years war, also when we research, when we discuss about the idea and ideology of Revolutionary Guard, very similar to Ghazalbash. We are ready to sacrifice, we are ready to fight in the favor of Islam, in the favor of Ali Faqih, and also in that time, when we are thinking about the Ghazalbash and their linkage and their relationship to Shah Ismail, all the Ghazalbash, all of them, they believe that they are ready to sacrifice themselves, their souls for the leader. It was Shah Ismail. This relationship was based on a sort of, I think, mysticism. I'm ready to sacrifice myself for Waliya Faqih, for Shah Ismail. If I say very briefly, when we want to ask to this question, is modern Iran, I mean Islamic Republic of Iran after 30 years, owed to Safavi dynasty? I believe that when we are talking about the core, the main elements of Safavi dynasty and Islamic Republic of Iran, it is the Shiism, the special interpretation about Shiism in both dynasties, Safavis and also Islamic Republic of Iran. And when we compare the founder of Safavi dynasty, Shah Ismail, and also the character and manner of the Imam Khomeini, also we find some similarity between two poets, between two mystic, between two leader, between two persons that they believe that they are belong to the Imam and also they are the representative of Imams. Thanks a lot. Dr. Elahe Rastami Povi is author of Women, Work and Islamism, Ideology and Resistance in Iran. To round the event off, she discussed the role of Shia Islam in the development of Iran and its significance for the modern Islamic Republic. I want to address three issues. One, uh, the continuity and change from the Safavid period and with today's Iran. Um, the art treasures of today are remarkably similar to to the ones in Safavid period. For example, the pattern on carpets uh, uh, with the pattern on the uh, tiles of the mosques, uh, calligraphic art, which was so important to the Safavids, uh, after the 1979 revolution, uh, re-emerged and developed uh, again. Uh, at the time of Safavid, the ancient city of Isfahan was the capital city. Uh, today, the capital city is, is Tehran. Uh, it's a very modern, busy city with 13 million people, bad traffic and bad pollution. However, you have so many museums, art galleries, uh, churches, mosques, synagogues, that one or two weeks visit would not do justice to it. Uh, Isfahan is not the only city in Iran which produces handicrafts, carpets, arts, calligraphy, etc. There are other cities. Nevertheless, Isfahan 
remains the most stunning city in Iran and perhaps uh, one of the most uh, stunning cities in the world. So this is the, uh, at, at art level, uh, I see the change and continuity. The second point that I wanted to make uh, is the issue of the importance of Shiism to uh, the development of Iran and also to uh, Iranian identity. The discourse of Shiism uh, is based on uh, challenging unjust rules and unjust rulers. That was the case in early Islam, and that was also the case uh, in the 1970s when the rule of the Shah, who was friend of the, of the West, was challenged and led to the 1979 revolution, which was a modern urban revolution. And today, uh, one increasingly dominant interpretation of Shiism, uh, which allows pluralistic debate and uh, democratic discussions, this is the one which is uh, very popular both in Iran and also throughout the region. The third point that I wanted to, to raise is that why is it that Iran is so much uh, misrepresented in the West? Uh, whose fault is it? Is it Iran's fault or is it the fault of, of, of the West? Is this the case that um, whenever the West needs Iran, then they, they become friendly with Iran and whenever they don't need Iran, then Iran becomes a terrorist, uh, sponsoring terrorism, fundamentalist country? The reality of what we hear by the politician and most part of the media is completely different. That perception is completely different to the, to the reality of Iran. The, the reality is that the pro, it, is, it is true that the process of Islamization had and it still has grassroots support. Uh, there are limitations in terms of uh, elections, but the, the leaders within the context, Islamic context, they have very different political views. We have had, after the Iran-Iraq war, we have had Rafsanjani, and then Khatami, and then Ahmadinejad, and then there will be an, another election uh, in, in a month's time. And, and these leaders, these political leaders, they have actually won the support of the people through genuine elections. Of course, I do not deny the limitations of, 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 of the system at all. And what is interesting is that there is constantly a battle between the conservative Islam and, and, and democratic Islam. And the majority of the population uh, believe in modern ideological thinking, both in the context of Iran and Islam. And they are really see seeking a balance between the power of the state institution and civil society organizations, uh, and the rule of law, uh, accountability, uh, dem democracy, and so on. So I think it's very important to actually show the real truth about Iran with all its limitations.